were very aggressive saying, you know, we did not think it was a recession. We thought it was a bear without recession. And that, you know, thus far, you know, the market has responded accordingly. Small caps tend to lead on massive rallies like that. But when you look at the overall fundamental situation, whether you're looking at valuation, whether you're looking at extended technicals, whether you're looking at really small caps tend to be dependent on lending as opposed right. to capital formation. So consequently, you know, they're, they're not dependent on the markets. They're dependent on, on bank lending, for example. From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Good morning, Ryan. Hey, John. Good morning. How's it going over there? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. Glad to have you back. As Jeff and I discussed a week ago, you were working on your tan down in Florida at our LPL Masters Conference with some of our advisors. Now, you don't look that tan, but you did look, I'll tell everyone, he did look a little tan last week when I saw you, but the the sun is gone, it looks like. I was in a windowless, soulless conference room for six (laughs) days. However, when I did get home, I sat on the deck and had lunch with my wife, and it was 65 and sunny back in Charlotte. So (laughs) that's where I got the, the sun on my well, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. And uh, in today's edition, uh, we'd like to cover a couple of things. First and foremost, the curious jobs report that we received a little over a week ago and the impact on that on the Federal Reserve and interest rate policy. And then finally, uh, let's talk about that strange dynamic between large and small stocks and uh, provide our listeners with some insight there. But first and foremost, I'm busting at the seams. I, I can't yeah. talk about, y- y'all know that uh, Ryan and I are big college basketball fans, and there was a big basketball game Friday night, Ryan. Care to discuss it? I saw you had uh, Xavier Socks on in Twitter on Friday. I have no idea what you're talking about. I yeah, don't want to talk think about th- it. I think there was a big East uh, semifinal. Yes. So as John said, I went to Xavier University. I'm an Ohio boy. Went to Xavier in Cincinnati. And John is a it was undergrad Villanova for you? Undergrad Villanova. Okay. I was also right. undergrad. So being in the Big East, they play each other twice a year. And they did split this year. But the game that mattered was on Friday night in New York City. And Xavier was up most of the game. Villanova came back like they always do. And as soon as went to overtime, I looked at my boys. I said, boys, you looked at the Xavier guys. They were sad going to overtime. The Villanova guys were happy going to overtime. I said, this game is over, and sure enough, Villanova got him in OT. Well, uh, I attribute that to Jay Wright as one heck of a coach because it's a rebuilding year. They had, what, three, three first-rounders and four in the first two rounds. They were only expecting to lose one, and this is a rebuilding year, and they win the Big East Championship. So good for the Villanova Wildcats. I, uh, I did not want to send you a text and bust your chops, though, because uh, you know I've, I've been there when kids are upset, and you've done a masterful job giving – you know, objective advice to your kids as they root for the Reds, Xavier, <laughs> right. and the Bengals. So really open-minded parenting yeah. there. What could I so say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just real quickly on Jay Wright. You're right. That's kind of funny to say. He, he's You can't not like the guy. I mean, I grew up as a Bengals fan. You don't like the Steelers. You don't like certain teams. You don't like their coaches. But Jay Wright, you just have to respect him because he's such a good guy. And I said, you know, if, Z- if Xavier would have won that game, they'd be still in the bubble. But you could imagine Jay Wright probably say, you know what, that's a top 68 team. They should be in the conference. He just says the yep, right thing. Absolutely. He, he's just a great guy. Absolutely. So. And my wife can provide validation for that because uh, Linda went to Carolina, okay. University of North Carolina, Chapel mm-hmm. Hill, for those of you <laughs> Uh, thinking it's a South University of South Carolina, uh, but yeah, she went to Carolina when Villanova beat Carolina with that last second shot mm-hmm. three years ago. Even my wife could be objective mm-hmm. about that and say that's a good team and a good coach and and good kids. So your marriage survived that. I Absolutely, that yeah. I had to sleep on the couch for a year, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know what, hey. thankfully uh, Carolina won it the next year, so I'm back <laughs> oh, in her that, good that graces. Helped. That helped. So that kind of softened the blow, but yeah, really kind of disappointing. Um, Big East champion, Big Ten champion. 
SEC champion, six and seven seeds. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't either. I mean, it's um the ACC is talented uh, mm-hmm. and three ones, you know, but give the others twos or threes, not sixes or sevens. Yeah, maybe it just gives us everyone something to complain about the next day and then talk about. But you're right, it it was uh, some head scratchers at the least. Uh, but like I said, my team's not in it, so I don't even. I don't know. I'm kind of. I'm just disappointed all around. I guess right. over here. But our yeah. listeners have chosen not to listen right. to sports talk radio, so they could listen to this podcast. So maybe we should switch, stop digressing and transition <laughs> to right. something really impressive like economics. Uh, the jobs report came in last month. Pretty disappointing. Only twenty thousand jobs. Uh, missed it by that much, right? The street was projecting what one hundred eighty thousand. That's right, John. One of the largest misses we've seen in a couple of years, and. So we're actually writing about it today on our weekly, on Monday, on our weekly economic commentary, taking a look at the jobs number. And it was a very weak print. I believe it was the weakest number we've seen since September 2017. If you think back to that time, they definitely had all the hurricane impact, the weather impact. And there was a big, there was another low number about 15 or 16 months before then. And that was also impacted by weather. And then you had streaks of 100,000 jobs for 14, 15 months in a row. And we just had a streak of 100,000 jobs, at least 100,000 jobs each month, every month until last month from the September 2017 low of, of I think, 15,000. John, do you think this was just weather and then we're going to have continued strong jobs for like another year or so? Like Kind of like the pattern we've seen for the last few years? Yeah, the, the first quarter, as you know, from a, a GDP overall economic standpoint, is always kind of screwy, right? And then you have a... Uh 35-day government shutdown. We had delays on a lot of data. We, we clearly had some weather experience, right, in the Northeast and in the Midwest. Uh, so uh, I think it's an anomaly, uh, but nonetheless, you know, glo- slowing global growth, and then you see an industrial production number or a weak jobs report, it's going to add to the concern for investors. But curiously, we're seeing defensives still do well, and the markets still do well, as of this morning at least. So I think it's more of an exception rather than the rule, because the underlying trend, if you look at the last couple of months prior to that, we created 500,000 jobs. And for us to, you know, typically before we slip in a recession, we're, what, about 75% of the mm-hmm. monthly gains, and yes. we would have to create something ridiculous like 60,000 jobs a month over the next six months to... Uh, achieve that level. And, I, and I, I'm kind of hard pressed to see that, particularly if wages are up north of 3% and we've got momentum. We've got certainly momentum on the uh, weekly jobless claims and the ADP private payroll employment report was not indicative of what we saw there either. So that that would suggest there is some sort of discrepancy because of the government shutdown right, and yeah. the weather. Yeah, John, kind of building on what you just said there, take it to maybe the next level. If you look at the average jobs over the last 12 months, it's 200000 a month. Mm-hmm. If you look at previous recessions, and we do this in this week's weekly economic commentary, you don't fall into a recession when you have 200000 job print over the previous 12 months. Or you tend to profits, see, Exactly. Right? You tend to see that number lower. And you just mentioned it, 500,000 jobs created the two months before this, this pretty poor number we just saw in February. So when you average it all out... Yes, one data point does not make a trend. Clearly, we're going to watch it closely, but we've had these one-off months before, and then kind of things kind of kick back into gear. And um, all in all, you know, this week's weekly economic commentary kind of summarizes what we just said. The economy still there's some concerns, uh, no question there. But um, you know, John, some of the more leading economic cycles are things like consumer confidence. A lot of economic data, let's be honest, is more coincident or lagging. 
Well, when it comes to consumer confidence, that's definitely one of the best leading indicators we have. And Michigan Consumer Confidence came out on Friday. The other various consumer confidence polls have all really bounced back significantly from those very low levels and worrisome levels we saw after the fourth quarter. So that's a little more significant to us. Last thing I'll say, John, they hand it back to you. Looking at the, some of the GDP numbers, the people that predict the Atlanta Now GDP forecast, it actually went up after that jobs number. Right. So think about that. The jobs number was very poor. Why is that? Well, we had some really strong housing data mixed in there as well. So GDP number went up, even though the jobs number is very poor. Well, that's kind of why the market had its best week of the year last week. S&P gaining 2.9%, kind of shook off a lot of the worries out there. And that's kind of curious because that is probably the least or most poorly advertised housing uh, momentum that we've seen in five years, right? So we're, we're, we're seeing some firming in housing. You know, even if we see 1% growth in the first quarter GDP, it's still growth. Uh, and, I, you know, the first quarter is always screwed up because of seasonal adjustments right. and post-holiday stuff. And then you have that on top of the government shutdown this time around. Uh, you know, so we're kind of have to view that one with a grain of salt and really kind of, you know, we embrace the fact that the surge in the second and third quarter of 2018 is unlikely to be repeated, but we still see a trend toward that two and a half percent rate of growth, not the three and a half or four, but you know the two and a half percent type pace for the remainder of nineteen. Uh, that's a great point. I know we're probably going to write about it and talk about it more, but you look at the last 10, 15 years, the first quarter, for whatever reason, and there's always a reason, tends to be one of the weakest out of the four quarters, and you see a pickup. And definitely this year, we see that playing out again. But John, let's switch gears. You know, the one of the big questions that we have this week again. So last week had a really good rally. S and P broke up above that twenty eight fifteen level. Stocks are looking good. There's participation across the board, but it's about the Fed, right? This week we have a Fed decision. The general consensus is we're not no decision exactly no decision (laughs) and patience. But the two things we all want to hear about are the balance sheet and kind of what they so the balance sheet and then the Fed dot plots. You know, will there be one more rate hike this year? Will there not be? And then the balance sheet, four trillion dollar balance sheet. It's being run off $50 billion each month, but they might stop it a little sooner. What do you think our investors should be on the lookout for this Wednesday when the Fed has, you know, I think probably one of the more boring Fed meetings. Chairman Powell was just on 60 Minutes to kind of talk about what he wanted. Nonetheless, the dot pots and kind of how the economy is doing are things we're going to be watching. What should we be looking for here? Yeah, for the uninitiated, uh, for people who aren't as geeky as Ryan and I, the dot plots are uh, indications, average of Fed governors and regional Fed presidents on the Federal Reserve Board, Open Market Committee, what their projections are for uh, interest rates and the federal funds rate, the overnight lending rate, which the Fed is in charge of. You and I as investors are in charge of every other rate out there through supply and demand mechanisms. Uh, Nonetheless, really given all that's happened these last three months, uh, I I guess the last dot plot suggested one more rate hike this year it's conceivable that number reduces even further. Relative to the, uh, I, I, w- I want to emphasize, not for the cycle, but for 2019. Looking at the, the balance sheet, there's been some discussion about the Fed stopping uh, the runoff of their balance sheet, meaning when fixed income securities mature on their balance sheet, they just let them roll off. They don't reinvest the proceeds like they had been doing once they stopped expanding the balance sheet. Now there's a, there's a discussion that the Fed wants to slow down that runoff process. You know, we, we peaked at about $4.5 trillion. We're down to about $4 trillion now. I think they're going to go at least 
through 2019, you know, if they can get that number to 3.7 trillion, you know, we are talking a balance sheet. And those of you who remember in Accounting 101, there's an asset side and a liability side. And the Fed has to be mindful of the liability side for the reserve requirements that they're holding for uh, the large money center banks and all the all the lending institutions out there. So for that degree, uh, the Fed may not go below three and a half, three trillion dollars on the balance sheet. Be mindful that it was eight hundred million in August of '08, so they quintupled the size of the balance sheet. And uh, I think they should go at least through this year, maybe another year, get that number down to three point five, three point seven, somewhere along there. And by doing that, you know that's kind of a surreptitious increase in market interest rates, right? Because the Fed is no longer backstopping Treasury auctions first, first off, right? And then secondly, the Fed is no longer reinvesting proceeds. So that has an upward bias on market interest rates, which can help steepen the yield curve, particularly as global investors and domestic investors are concerned about deficit spending, whether you have a trade deficit or whether you have a federal budget deficit. So those are all upward sloping pressures on the yield curve and global investors have to decide, you know, even with hedging costs, is it worth it buying the Bund or the JGB, the Japanese government bond, at zero or 10 basis points on the Bund, for example? Or do they want to get 270 on the 10-year? So they're probably willing to eat those hedging costs. It would appear that's the case. Right. And that can have some sort of flattening. So you're going to have a yin and a yang and some push-pull, some creative tension on the yield curve. But if the Fed keeps the balance sheet runoff going, that has an upward bias to the curve, which is significant of future growth. So it'll be cu- very curious to see how they how they position that this week. Right. Now, building on that, John, you know, on the yield curve, just looking at the 10-year yield, I mean, it's flirting down close to the 260 level near the lows of this earlier this year. But some interesting things are happening under the surface. The copper-gold ratio is one we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Copper's industrial metal. Gold is obviously more defensive. Copper-gold has been really strong this year. So copper's been doing well in industrial metal. Historically, when copper outperforms gold, the 10-year yield tends to go up. It's actually gone down this year. Uh, going low this year. The other thing I'll add, and John, turn it over to you. Some of the bank stocks are doing pretty well. You know, a, a steepening yield curve, and just usually keep it real simple. A ten-year yield, ten-year yield is going up. A lot of times, that's a nice tailwind for bank stocks. So you got this lower trending global yields. Let's be honest, this is a global phenomenon we've seen for a long time, but specifically this year, uh, banks are hanging in there, and the copper gold ratio saying, hey, maybe yields will start to finally uh, trickle higher with the ten-year. What do you think there? Right. Well, you and I. Uh, and our partners in marketing communications deliberately called this podcast Market Signals Podcast, and we think the market signals right now are very confusing. Um, it's it's our opinion that if copper's going up and the 10 years going down, you know, somebody's wrong. There's a, a fair amount of concern, not significant to sway the market, but there is some discussion that the 10-year, what does the bond market know that we don't? Right. You know, in the equity Smartest market, Smartest guys example. in the room, exactly. what are they worried about? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really believe it's that the 10-year is less absurdly priced than the rest of the global sovereigns, and I think that's the dynamic there. Copper clearly is saying it's a mid-cycle slowdown in global growth if you just want to look at copper's reaction to what's happening, right? So I think it's terribly important to, you know, digest all that data and just recognize, you know, we are still going to be paying for extraordinary policy initiatives over the past decade, and I think this is an example. I, I don't think that 10-year is pointing 
to recession. I think the 10-year is saying, you know, we're, le again, less absurdly priced than the rest of the rest of the global sovereigns. Interesting. So let's maybe go to the next subject, or final subject, yeah, actually. What does that take us to equities, exactly? That takes us, that's a good segue to equity. So, John, clearly large cap versus small cap. This week in our weekly market commentary, we took a look at this, and we do side more with large caps here the rest of this year. Now, just to set the page, you know, so far this year, small caps, and I think it was also March 1st, the Russell 2000 of eight. 18% for the year. Massive rally in small caps, really like outperforming large. Low, exactly. Yeah. But what's the catch there? They were decimated in the fourth quarter. At down 20% small caps were one of the worst quarters they've seen in years. And now we've had a little comeback, I believe, as of Friday at least. Small caps were 15% for the year, and large caps were 12% for the year. So, John, kind of why do we really think large caps will finally take the baton and start to lead, really, the rest of 2019? Yeah, I think the... Uh you know, the rally, it was a, definitely a risk-on rally from the extreme lows, right? We were very aggressive saying, you know, we did not think it was a recession. We thought it was a bear without recession. And that, you know, thus far, you know, the market has responded accordingly. Small caps tend to lead on massive rallies like that. But when you look at the overall fundamental situation, whether you're looking at valuation, whether you're looking at extended technicals, whether you're looking at really small caps tend to be dependent on lending as opposed right. to capital formation. So consequently, you know, they're, they're not dependent on the markets. They're dependent on, on bank lending, for example. You know, if we see, as I mentioned earlier, gradual slight uptick in the yield curve, that's increased borrowing costs for small caps. And uh, so there, there are a handful of reasons why we're concerned there. If you're looking at 2.5% GDP growth, 3.5% global growth, to the degree the Fed is done or almost being done, that has a dollar dynamic, as well as the, the aforementioned twin deficits, budget and trade deficits. So all three of those are going to pressure the dollar. If the dollar is slightly weaker than last year, that bodes well for corporate profitability. Large caps tend to have that international exposure over small caps, and uh, we th we view that as a favorable dynamic for for larger larger companies. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we've talked about that before. A keep it simple: a weaker dollar tends to be a tailwind for large caps. A stronger U.S. dollar tends to be a tailwind for small caps. And, and that's how we position portfolios exactly. last year, right? We were mm -hmm. overweight small the first you know three quarters of last year right. when the Fed was raising rates, and the as we got to the as a investment committee, we arrived at the point where the Fed's done or close to being done. That's when we started repositioning uh, portfolios back toward large. Right. And then another factor, I mean, this is in June, will be a 10-year economic cycle of growth, the largest economic, longest economic cycle of growth since going back to World War II. And honestly, there's data, I don't know how they do it, but back to the 1800s, and this will definitely be the longest cycle of growth. So we do. You're saying you don't know how they do it. You're the you're the data king here. Uh, go ask Robert Schiller. <laughs> Robert right. Schiller over at Yale. He somehow comes up with those things. But nonetheless, you know, just looking at the last ten years, we know this is a long economic cycle. And the bottom line is, if you look back in history, in the late '90s, um, back in 2007, just recent history, small caps tend to do a little bit worse than large caps later in the economic cycle. So again, you know, how late are we in this economic cycle is the obvious $64,000 question. But we uh, we know this is an extended cycle. That's just maybe one more reason to think, you know, for next year or so, we, or if not longer, we can have large caps do well. And I will say in the show notes of uh, this podcast, when, you, when you're looking at it on the website there, we're going to have a nice chart that kind of just shows small caps recently, John, the S&P, I'm sorry, the Russell 2000 went right up to its 200-day moving average. Getting a little geeky on us, I know. Doink. Yeah, but it hit it and reversed, also on a relative strength basis. If you just simply look at small caps versus S&P 500, and again, that's on the show notes there. 
that also went up to a level that was resistance late last year. So there's two areas of potential resistance for small caps, and that's happened. But let's be very clear. If this market keeps going up, small caps hopefully go up. Everything should go yeah, up. It's just what we think will lead is the to large a lesser caps. degree, exactly. And I think that's really a distinction. You know, when we're positioning portfolios, you want to position them relative to the benchmarks. And uh, so we will still have exposure with small, uh, but relative to the bench, we will be overweight large relative to small when when looking at those benchmarks. So so to recap, Ryan, we got through the weekend. Uh, I want to wish everybody. Uh, a great deal of fun during March Madness. Hopefully March Madness will be limited purely to college basketball and not the financial markets. That's right. When looking at uh, recapping the madness that was the most recent jobs report, but you look at the overall trend, we think it's less concerning. When you look at that impact for monetary policy and when that should be for market interest rates, we think that's favorable. And ultimately, because of that interest rate call, we're, we're transitioning toward large relative to small. So, Ryan, I wish you a good week. Wish all our listeners a good week. We'll look forward to being on next week's LPL Financials Market Signal podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys. See you next week. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next week when we'll continue to analyze and discuss market signals. Stay connected by following us on Twitter, at LPL, or at LPL Research. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. LPL Market Signals is presented and produced by LPL Financial. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide or to construe as providing specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual security. Any economic forecast set forth in this podcast may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee the strategies promoted will be successful. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risks, including potential loss of principal. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee return or eliminate risk in all market environments. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. This research material was prepared by LPL Financial, LLC. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, and SIPC. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered independent investment advisor, please note that LPL Financial is not an affiliate of and makes no representation with respect to such entity. The investment products sold through LPL Financial are not insured deposits and are not FDIC, NCUA insured. These products are not bank credit union obligations and are not endorsed, recommended, or guaranteed by any bank, credit union, or any government agency. The value of this investment may fluctuate. The return on the investment is not guaranteed and loss of principal is possible.